Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. They handle that differently. We're in America. We believe in equal justice. Why did they not even tell America that that transpired? How did he sit before 60 minutes knowing what he had done? How do we find out a second location and he's shocked by it? Why aren't you asking him these questions? Why does it become forth to the American public? We don't think there needs to be a special prosecutor, but I think Congress has, has a role to look. Yes, last question. Kevin McCarthy better think there needs to be a special prosecutor. Because, well, it's the news of the day. Even more classified documents found, this time in Joe Biden's home. What do we say? What have we been saying since this happened? Why has there not been a raid of his house? Why hasn't his house been searched? You have documents in one office, then you have documents in his private office. Now you've got documents in his garage. Luckily, you know, the Corvette safe. Mr. President, Mr. President, classified material next to your Corvette. What were you thinking? Let me, uh, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage. Okay? So it's not like you're sitting out in the street. But anyway, yes, as well as my Corvette. Um, But as I said earlier this week, people know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. No, you take them home. You don't take them seriously. You take them to the office and you take them home. And listen to the disdain he has for Peter Ducey. My Corvette is locked in the garage. It's not like I leave it on the street, you know, like a commoner. Ah! That's out of control. Absolutely, positively out of control. It is obvious to anybody paying attention that this is wrong. And it is obvious to anyone paying attention that if we're going to compare it to Donald Trump, this is worse. And I don't condone Donald Trump having classified information in his house. I asked the question, like many did, are these declassified documents? Because the President of the United States can declassify them. Whether you like it or not, no one cares. No one cares whether you like it. The President, and Donald Trump was the duly elected President of the United States, he could declassify. These documents come from Vice President Biden. And Vice President Biden can't do nothing. As I said, he can smoke cigars and wait for someone to die. That's it. I only wish Biden was, you know... Cool enough, decent enough, suave enough, joyful enough to smoke cigars. Now he just throws on the aviators, drives around in the Corvette. Lord only knows if he leaves the garage open when he leaves. Right? It's locked when the Corvette's in there. What happens when he's on a joyride looking for an ice cream cone? Uh, I I will admit that that the anger is, is real. The anger is very, very real on this. We have to be asking ourselves exactly how many more places does he have these documents? And why are there people so willing to defend him? Why are they willing to defend what clearly is wrong? 
And exactly when did the Justice Department and the FBI know this? They were told on November 2nd that there were a handful of documents in Joe Biden's office there at the UPenn uh, Biden Center. Then it's documents in his private office. Now it's documents in his garage. Well, how long did they know this? Did they go and get them? Are we finding out ipso facto? Or did they just find them today? If so, what were they doing for the last two months? And if we're finding out today, who knew about this stuff for the past two, three, four, five years? It is, it is an issue. And it was wrong when Trump did it, and it's wrong when Biden does it. And I simply am not about to let the moment pass. And certainly not going to listen to Biden's conversations about, well, I keep my garage locked with the Corvette in it. Now, I know the White House is going to say all sorts of things. And one of the things you're going to be hearing from the White House more and more is, well, we can't talk about an ongoing investigation. That way, they don't have to answer any questions about Joe Biden's guilt. Then there's going to be the conversation. I said this on my video series yesterday on Rumble, rumble.com slash Tony Katz. You should subscribe. It's free. You're welcome, America. Wait until the conversation comes up about Joe Biden pardoning himself. You don't think that conversation is going to come up? I will bet you money. Now, I'm talking about real cash. Okay, yeah. cougarans, whatever it is you want. That conversation will come up. Joe Biden pardoning himself for his crimes against the country. Because I thought that's what this was. I thought that's what this was right here. All of a sudden, we're cool with it. All of a sudden, we're fine with it. Nah, no, 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 no. There's no being fine with it. We, uh, trust me, we're going to talk more about this uh, tomorrow and into next week. But the inflation numbers came out, and they are, um, well, they're not rosy. Yet there are a lot of people who are desperate to try and spin them as rosy. And I'm going to go through some headlines. Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis, going to break it down uh, with us. Find everything. TonyCats.locals.com. TonyCats.locals.com. This is Tony Katz today. So when you take a look at that headline, consumer price index, that'll tell you that inflation has eased. Inflation eases in December, but prices remain stubbornly high. That, according to Fox Business, the people over there at CNBC, consumer prices fell 0.1% in December, in line with expectations from economists. Those are two very, very different headlines. And as I look at this, staring at the data, I think both those headlines still don't tell the whole story. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. Ooh, I got a little choked up just thinking about it. Find everything, TonyKatz.locals.com. Dr. Matt Will joins us right now, economist at the University of Indianapolis and world traveler as well. We take a look at these numbers. And all you want to see, or all they want to see over there on Wall Street, is that it fell in line and everything is great. Doesn't seem like the market is really super excited about it. That's CNBC headline, sir. Consumer prices fell 0.1% in December, reflecting a slowdown for inflation. Um, this the uh, this the right headline? 
Tony, it's 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 somewhat laughable because uh, CNBC I consider usually pretty reliable, um, but we're excited because uh, year over year we're still at six and a half percent. In what world is six and a half percent inflation considered exciting? And Tony, remove inf- remove energy, remove gasoline, just the stuff you put in your tank. If you remove that, this thing has actually gone up the last month. Not down, it's gone up. And the decrease in price has nothing to do with what this administration doing. It has to do with the fact that Russia has figured out a way around the sanctions, which we've talked about previously, and the world is heading into a recession. When you go into a recession, energy prices drop. But Tony, there's one energy price that's up. There's one that's up, and it's up 36% last month. It's your utility bill with the gas going into your house. That is the one energy price that is going up, the one you actually are using to heat your home this winter. Now, wait a second. You annualize things. So when you say 36%, I'm staring at it. I'm staring at the BLS report. And by the way, anybody can, bls.gov. Take a look for yourself and see where the the reporting doesn't match the reality. Which line are you referring to? Because what I see is that energy commodities month over month are down 4.5%. I'm sorry, Tony, I'm at 26%. My my mistake. If you go to the utility piped gas services, 3% in one month, 3% times 12, Tony, 3% times 12. Oh, that is 36. That is 36. It is 36. 3% in one month times 12 is 36%, Tony. That's how much your gasoline annualized is going up, the, the, money, the, the, the utility going into your house to heat your home. And, by the way, to run your gas stove that you can't have anymore. Well, we don't have to get ourselves crazy about the gas stove insanity just yet. I've been talking about that. The White House, uh, via the Consumer Protection Safety Commission, saying that gas stoves cause asthma in children, and therefore we have to ban them. And the next thing you know, everybody in uh, on in the Democratic Party is like, oh, yes, gas stoves are horrible. We've known this for years. No one ever talked about it until three days ago, and now it's a big thing. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, Let's go back to that number where you see 3% utility piped gas service. So that's heating your house. But then you take a look at gasoline, and I have uh, noticed this, that gas prices in December did drop. But as I anecdotally drive around Indianapolis, gas prices are back over $3 a gallon. They were at that 289 number. So is this 9.4 down? On gasoline, all types, down 16.6 on fuel oil. Is that the, a, a blip for December that has no real recognition uh, in, in the marketplace? Or is there something else at play? And when I say no well, recognition Tony, in the marketplace... Yeah, there's a couple things. First of all, gasoline prices always fall in the winter. That's normal. They always go up in the summer when people are driving and down in the winter because there's simply less demand. But also, there's another thing happening here, and that is the global recession. So, you know, Biden wants to take credit for the decrease in, in demand for, for gasoline, which causes the price to go down. Well, the decrease in demand is because of a recession. So does he want to take credit for the recession also? 
the global recession that we're experiencing, because that's what causes a decrease in energy prices, because there's less demand when the economy is shrinking. And we have a lot of evidence that the economy is shrinking, Tony. And if we want to get into the PMI report from last week, that is a dramatic negative news, we can do that. But no, this energy price drop is is not a it's a good thing for our wallets, but it's not a good thing for the economy. All right, Dr. Will, let's go back over something if we can, because I want to go over why it is people are going to see a negative number, prices going down on gasoline, all types, and fuel oil, and yet there's still this conversation that this is a problem, that this is about global recession, that this is about Russia. Because when people see it, they're like, what are you complaining about? Gas prices are down. I want to get into the nitty and the gritty of why it's a bigger problem than people think. Well, well Tony, let's talk about the gasoline versus the fuel oil, okay? But they are related. Gasoline prices always go down in the winter. People are driving less. So when you drive less, there's less demand, so the price drops. That has nothing to do with anything that the administration is doing. But at the same time, fuel oil, which is used in the production and manufacturing of stuff, when that price drops, it's often because of lack of demand. What does lack of demand mean, Tony? Recession. That means companies aren't making stuff. Companies aren't manufacturing items. And if we look at the report from last week, the the Institute for Supply Management report, we have the second month of contracting manufacturing, the second month of contracting new orders, the second month of contracting production, the, the, the third month of supplier deliveries dropping. Tony, this is real data right now that says the demand for energy is low because the economy is shrinking. One of the other numbers that shows up here is that all items less food and energy, which they call the core CPI, Consumer Price Index, is up 0.3. So everything else is, I believe it's 0.6, because food is up 0.3, which if you do, do you then annualize that and you multiply that by 12? Yeah, I would. And Tony, look at it. It's the same, it's the same as it was in October. It actually is up from up from last month. So we aren't the, the battle between Biden and Powell is still going on. Biden's trying to spend money. Powell is trying to cut inflation. The inflation progress is very slow, Tony. We should be much further along the, the killing of inflation battle here. And we're not further along. And that has to do with the administration. And hopefully the new Congress will be able to slow them down. But I'm not too impressed with their ability to, to do things as I've seen the last week. So when you see this CPI at 0.6 and you see the core at 0.3, what you have been saying all along, as for as long as we've been talking together, Dr. Will, is that that doesn't matter. What matters is this manufacturing number. What matters is, is that there is no stock and no one's making anything to stock because no one can afford to stock anything. That's still your driving principle? It is, Tony, because that's the boots-on-the-ground number from the survey of ISM, the Institute for Supply Management, that talks to the manufacturers. You talk about Main Street, Tony. This is a Main Street report. They're calling on the phone. They're asking, what are you doing? And they're saying, we have no backlog of orders. For three months in a row, Tony, no backlog of orders. 
Customer inventories are shrinking for the 75th month, Tony. 75 months now, the inventories for customers have been shrinking. People aren't buying stuff. People aren't manufacturing stuff because there's nothing to – they're not buying stuff, Tony. And then if you want to get into prices on food, you know, let's forget energy. Let's look at food. Let's look at eggs. There's a lot of problems out there in the inflation front, Tony. The egg prices. I mean, uh, people who listen to the show all the time, I'm constantly getting inundated with what is going on with the price of eggs, with the price of milk, all of these things. But there was President Biden – just today, in front of a sign, uh, you know, he's got the, the backdrop that says costs are coming down, and this is what he said. And as inflation is coming down, take-home pay for workers is going up. Workers' wages are higher now than they were seven months ago, adjusted for inflation. So is that true, sir? Uh, costs are coming down, wages are going up? Tony, that, that's contradictory. How can he look in the mirror and say that honestly? Wages are a cost. Wages are the cost of manufacturing items. It's the cost that goes into the stuff that you buy in the store. So apparently he's saying that prices are going up here, but prices are going down there. Can he make up his mind? Yes, Tony. The top line number is going down slowly. It's not nearly as slow as it should be, and the core price is exactly where it was two months ago. I don't know what you think, Tony, but 5.7 last two months ago and 5.7 today is the same number. So now, what does the market do? You talk about the idea of recession. I believe we've been in a recession for the last six months, but it seems like nobody believes that people are still shopping, they're still doing all sorts of things. We're in the recession. This is still taking place. What now that we're into 2023 is the expectation? What are other economists saying out there? And what indicators from other businesses and other nations are out there that should have people like us concerned even if Wall Street isn't paying attention. Well, Tony, you know, it's it's interesting you bring that up because the World Bank just came out with an estimate yesterday that showed growth forecast plummeting across the globe. And uh, Bloomberg just came out with a report as well where they pulled every single major economic uh, organization out there. You name, you know, you name the organization, Tony, you know, Citibank, BCA, Barclays, BNP, BN, all of them, BlackRock. They all say that 2023 has a higher than normal expectation of, infl- of recession. Many of these organizations like the World Bank are saying that many countries are already in a recession. And even though it's not showing up in the GDP numbers, because you and I, Tony, we talk about the GDP numbers or the official number, and we were officially in a recession. But when you look at the manufacturing base of our country, it's contracting. It's been contracting for two months, and the rest of the world is contracting more. If you are advising people, and I am not holding you to anything, Um, Many people have discussed over the last year, over 2022, um, hold on to your cash. Hold your cash. You're going to need it. Others, and you've been one of these people, saying buy the goods now because the cash is going to be worth less and less going forward. 
Which one is the right mathematics going towards 2023? Well, Tony, if people would have taken my advice last year, they would have been in good shape. Now, this month, used car prices dropped, so that may not have been the asset. But if you'd have bought a Rolex or gold or if you'd have brought another fixed asset, you you would be in pretty good shape. Going forward, Tony, um, I'm a person that's pushing income-producing investments. So rental property, while the property value may go down, the rental income will continue to go up. So rental income, income-producing stocks, uh, utility companies, those are the ones that are going to be safe because as the market contracts, you want to be invested in something that produces income. That is Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, D-R-M-A-T-T-W-I-L-L. Dr. Matt Will on the Twitter box. You can find him there, sir. I always appreciate you. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. General Valery Gerasimov. Okay, I admit, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name properly. What he is is the new general that has been appointed to lead the war in Ukraine by Vladimir Putin. I'm assuming an appointment by Vladimir Putin is you, go now. And then he goes back to taking whatever drugs he's taking to stay alive these days. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. It is unique and interesting that once again we see a new appointment from Putin to deal with this war effort that clearly isn't going well, but clearly has no end in sight. Whatever diplomacy was ever attempted is not working. Whatever new diplomacy is out there doesn't even seem to be making a dent. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians keep begging for more hardware, begging for more money, begging for more opportunities, and Vladimir Putin is still surviving as the leader of Russia, even though his people, they aren't happy with what they're seeing at all. Major Mike Lyons joins us right now, retired United States Army West Point graduate. You see him on TV and hear him on radio shows like uh, this one. Uh, This appointment of this general, is this a signal to you that uh, Vladimir is uh, tiring is it a signal that he's willing to win at every any cost? Or is this a signal that he's run out of people and he's just got to throw somebody in there to pretend to lead? Hey, Tony, great to be back. I, I'm of the volition that this is uh, just getting started for him. Um, I, this is the individual who currently runs the entire Russian military from a strategic perspective. In some ways, it's a demotion to go from what he was doing before to now running the theater of operations. Um, it's a demotion for the former commander, uh, Sir Vokin. I think that uh, in this guy, um, Gers, Gers Asimov, does not even have tactical experience. He's been at this position since 2012, almost 10 years. He's not very competent in, in the running of a war versus the guy that was in the job uh, beforehand. So this is kind of last you know, kind of throws to see what what can happen here. A lot of politics going on. They're going to have to have someone replace him at at the level he's uh, at he was at before. 
Um, but I think this is all about getting ready for the spring offensive and, and whether or not Ukraine is falling into the trap right now that uh, the, these small Russian victories as Ukraine continues to grind down people and equipment. Um, you know, Russia still has 150,000 troops that they're ready to deploy here very shortly in the next few months. And, and, and maybe in Putin's eyes, he wants this guy to, to take credit for that if and when he believes victory's going to come. But that seems to be opposite what we were told before the invasion began, that what Putin needed was frozen ground to be able to run tanks over it, otherwise they're going to get stuck in the mud. So what now is this conversation of the possibility, as you're describing it, not a probability, but nothing more than a possibility, of a spring offensive? Well, th- that um, that fr- uh, analysis that they thought was going to happen just didn't come true. They, you know, when they originally invaded back in February, it was the you know kind of the beginning of the end of winter, beginning of springtime there. You know, I check the weather there every day; it's still pretty cold. But the, the it just comes down to the level of equipment. They still don't have enough equipment to go on the offensive. How the Ukraine military is defending across an 800-kilometer front is really because of the support coming from the West and the fact that the Russian military hasn't learned. They haven't been able to combine fires and, and, and the things that, all the things that go with it. So, I, you know, Russia right now is keeping its powder dry in certain areas before they decide to go on the offensive. And in their case, it looks like that's going to happen more to the north and to the east of the Donbass region. But they're vulnerable to the south, and I think that's what Ukraine should be focusing on if they decide to cut off Russian troops in the southern portion of the Donbass area, um, what, what the scenario, the nightmare scenario for Vladimir Putin is 20 or 30,000 Russian troops surrender, and I think that's a real possibility there. If Russian troops surrender to that level, first, you're making the, the statement that the Ukrainian forces have the ability to make that happen. But if you see surrendering in the Donbass, the areas that started this when uh, Vladimir Putin said, well, we're sending in troops to keep the peace because these people want their, their, their freedom. And, you know, they had a vote and now they're part of Russia. Oh, well, that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. 30,000 people, 30,000 Russian soldiers surrendering would mean an abdication of the Donbass, would it not? Yeah, no, it would be huge. It would be... Um, you know, again, it just gets back to whether or not to think they can win that battle or not, and that's what they want those offensive weapons for. Um, but, uh, it, 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 you know, again, that's on the map. If you look on the ground, it's the only way that the Ukraine military can force any kind of concession out of Russia to try to surrender, because then that threatens Crimea, that threatens uh, that area specifically. It means going to, back to Mariupol. It means going back to some other places that they're, we've seen the battles go. But but there's no question that, that this move and, and everything that's going in there just says, you know, Russia remains to be in this for the long haul. Um, and especially as the West continues to support um, the Kiev and support um, the, the Ukraine military situation, you know, Putin's got nothing. He, this is his way of doubling down by moving a senior leader there all in when it comes to all his troops and all his leadership talking to major mike lyons retired united states army uh military analyst radio and tv west point graduate a lot of talk right now about ukraine holding on in that area of solidar s-o-l-e-d-a-r so this Mm -hmm. is donetsk it's donetsk and luhansk where this 
all starts. This is part of that Donbass conversation. I mean, this is far to the north mm-hmm. uh, of Mariupol, which is that mm-hmm. area uh, that is on the Sea of Azov before you get yourself into the Black Sea. Um, mm-hmm. So this is far away from Mariupol, far away from that needing to be able to control that port city to be able to control the the waterways. What is the fighting going on here? Why specifically uh, this region? The Solidar is a, one of the arteries coming out of Bakhmut, which is along these towns that exist in, in that area. Krematorsk is another one. They are um, kind of think about star-shaped crossing points of roads, logistics, um, uh, infrastructure. They all go through these areas there. Um, the fighting there, there's no people. It's been depopulated. It's been flattened. Um, Russia's claiming victory over an area that, that really has you know kind of very little land to it. Um, the, the Ukraine has got to be careful, though, of, of putting too much uh, forces there and losing those forces as they're trying to defend an area that, that doesn't have really, from what I see, doesn't have a, a military um, value to it uh, because of, of where it's you know specifically located. And, they, and what they've got to do the same, too, is keep their powder dry for a spring offensive. So um, Russia needs to claim some kind of victory. We've got both sides you know dug in. Both sides strategically, they're, they're Ways and means of, of of accomplishing their strategic objectives are completely off, but Russia has to declare a victory right now, and Ukraine's doing everything it can to make sure it doesn't declare a victory. Whether that's a big town like Bakhmut or Krematorsk or a small town like Solodar, and I think that's what's taking place there. This conversation of victory has truly divided Washington D.C where you have some people who want a bust of Vladimir Zelensky inside the Capitol. They literally want a statue of the man inside the Capitol, and others saying, why are we funding this thing to begin with? Mm -hmm. So we have put our billions in here. That has to be towards an objective. As you see it, what now is the desired objective? Can that objective be be attained? And are the people supporting and not supporting uh, Vladimir Zelensky in this, as you view it, right or wrong? Well, I think that what you're coming, what's coming out of the Pentagon is to the politicians that say, look, let's continue to support the Ukraine military while they are not losing. And what they're doing is destroying the Russian military in place. So that's a good thing. So we're spending money in order to have somebody else proxy war destroy you know, one of our adversaries, military in place. And I think from the the long run, that's a good thing. I think you'll see this go on for three or four more months until, let's say, the Russian military is attributed to 40% capability, let's say, where they really can't threaten uh, anymore. Then you might see the offensive weapons go in. Right now, uh, sending only one Patriot battery, for example, just doesn't cut it. That's not enough to really defend all of Ukraine. They would need four or five. But the long-range missiles, the F-16s, potentially the M1 tanks, the, the Abrams tanks, the, they're all real difference makers. We know we're going to send the Bradleys. Those are going to make somewhat of a difference. But if you get the offensive weapons, they could potentially threaten Ukraine on the uh, threaten Russia on the ground by the Ukraine forces. I don't think we're going to do that until we're confident that the Russians have been attributed to, to down to an area where they're going to be combat and effective. That just hasn't happened yet. So it is, in your view rational to be supportive because it's the destruction of the Russian army 
without sacrificing a U.S. troop. The money's worth it, in your view. Yeah, it's a cynical way to look at it, but I I know that the, the Pentagon is whispering to the administration, you know, kind of let's like take this day, you know, week by week, and as as the Russian military is being destroyed in place and and equipment is being destroyed, that's still fundamentally a good thing for the security of uh, of uh, Western Europe. You're seeing more European countries pour equipment in Panzers coming in. There's a, there's other equipment that's coming in now from Germany and obviously Poland with their support has been tremendous. So I think that's what the, that I know that's what the Pentagon is telling the administration. Let's give this another three months. And then, and then if we can tip the tide at some point, it's all about leverage, right? Ukraine still does not have any leverage to get Russia to stop. So what's that going to be? They're going to have to threaten something. They're going to have to do something on the ground there where Russia feels that case. And, and, and then the other side, Russia looks at this by changing commanders, by saying, nope, we're all in, we're going to double down, and 150,000 troops are coming in six months, whether, or not, whether you like it or not. Well, that doubling down also says that Russia, uh, as, as a whole, is okay with this. They're okay with keeping Vladimir Putin in power, regardless of the, the stories about whether he's ill or anything else, how this looks to the people uh, back in Russia, the feeling that this has gone on for a year when this was supposed to go on for a week, uh, mm-hmm. if, if you will, it's supposed to be done super quick. What is the take in Russia, and how is Vladimir Putin putting aside and holding off those who might be saying, even in Russia, this is enough of this? Yes, talking to somebody about that specific question, and they said that uh, here in the United States, getting information from people and that they got in church, so I'm, you know, from people that they've talked to back home, literally on both sides, is that um, they 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 claim that Russian citizens are still in support of what of what Vladimir Putin is doing. It's not as uh, you know, there are certain pockets of resistance that we like to show on television every once in a while in Moscow or so, but. Most Russians are still either in the dark about what's going on or or, or, or in agreement with, with the operation. So, you know, it's that, that balance. That, it, we haven't had that tipping point. We haven't had that, you know, the My Lai massacre from the, from the U.S. perspective. We had the Tet Offensive, for example. We haven't had the situation happen in, in Ukraine yet where the Ru- Russian citizens are saying, oh, wait, enough's enough. Uh, and obviously, the support from Ukraine is uh, is you know remains to be seen because it's looking at their survivability. Let me change subjects on you just for half a second. Uh, there were these war games that took place. The Center for Strategic and International Studies war gaming. What would happen uh, if China were to try and take Taiwan, and the United States were to stand in the way? What is it that we would see as as a result? And what the war game simulations showed was that China would not get Taiwan, but the Chinese military, the U.S. military, and the Japanese military would all suffer losses that were just flat-out catastrophic. Right. Do right. you put any stock into these war games exercises? Yeah, no, I, I, I saw that, and I saw some of the results. Like, for example, um. That uh, they they have to win uh, in order for them to do that. They literally have to sink, uh, you know, uh, aircraft carriers. They've got to uh, potentially attack Pearl Harbor. They've got to uh, potentially uh, align with uh, North Korea to attack South Korea. It, it'll be a very big regional World War type uh, type of mission. I I you know the the Chinese are 
afraid of making a mistake and not doing that, not recognizing that that's what they're going to have to do um, with regard to um, what they've seen happen in history in order for them to be successful. For example, they think that the Japanese were too overconfident in World War II and had victory disease already, and they're, they're concerned about the Chinese having that already. They, they think that you know, from Sun Tzu's perspective, you fight this without, without having to you know, fire a shot. Well, the Japanese were so overconfident back then, and that's, that's, what, that's what forced them to make the mistakes they did. But the, but the impact in particular about attrition, for example, on both sides, and the fact that um, what will happen immediately will be just, again, catastrophic losses for the United States Navy and the United States um, and the Japanese military. But what, what they have not factored in is when, you, when the U.S. cranks up the war machine, it's over, right? I mean, we're, we're 2-0 and in World Wars for a reason, and I think that's would really come to fruition, you know, very quickly. So we might suffer those those catastrophic losses initially, but the U.S. would crank up the war machine and, and, it, and it would eventually change the world. How much of this is actually utilized as a propaganda piece to get China to realize, hey, maybe you don't want this as badly as you think you do? Well, a lot of it has to do with the Taiwanese convincing the rest of the world that we're going to do what Ukraine has done and that we're going to hold off and we're going to defend and we're going to create a stalemate very quickly. But if, but eventually, just from history, you know, the, the country with the larger capacity when it comes to industrial capabilities wins these wars of stalemates and attrition. So what, what they're going to do the same thing what Ukraine's doing. They're going to have that defense, they're going to be a porcupine, they're not going to give in right away, they're not going to cave in three days, but they're eventually going to say, we're going to have to have help that's going to have to come from come from the West and uh, come from the United States, and come from the, the, the Australia and Japan and potentially South Korea, and um, it, it likely will escalate, but that's the only way we're going to hold on. Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army military analyst, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us, Major. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. It is very weird to put the last 48 hours into into context. Maybe it's more. Maybe it's it's 72. And and it, the, the, this classified document conversation, I get that the press doesn't want to talk about it. And I get that people are going to hit on me. Well, not hit on me. I don't know. They might. I'm a handsome man. Uh, take hits at me. You weren't angry. this angry with Trump. Yeah, I, I actually was. But I was disgusted by the raid. There was no need to raid Donald Trump's house. No need. You knew he had these documents. You were already in conversations with him. There was no need for the raid. Well, he wasn't. He was, uh, what, what's the word? Obstructing. No, stop it. Stop it. You picked a time where he wasn't home because, in your words, you didn't want it to be a spectacle. You were going after the house of the former president. It's going to be a spectacle. Joe Biden is making a spectacle. He is. Really, more than him, the people defending these actions. When Trump did it, it was evil because Trump's a bad, nasty guy. But when Biden does it, it's an oopsie. It was accidental. He doesn't pack his own boxes. It's just a mistake. Oh, well. 
It's not that. Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, who else? Oh, we already know that Barack Obama had documents that the archives had to ask for to, to have back. If we did these kinds of things, we'd be in jail. They do these kinds of things and life goes on? Exactly how much danger have they put the nation in? Don't tell me I'm the only one who gives a damn about that. Find everything, TonyCats.locals.com. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.